Welcome to Avocado Knits. Today I'm going to share a story with you that I wrote about 10 years ago and also some observations about the experimentation that one can do with a story. We talk about making the appropriate alterations when you are going to make a knitted garment and also a little update on my rats. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Okay, let's brush. That was Eric Strom's daily song number 127, Jim the Toothbrush. Barnaby and the Hookie Pookie Birds Barnaby was the second son of a second son, which wasn't as spectacular as being the seventh son of a seventh son, but which was good enough for Barnaby. Instead of having to be an incredibly powerful sorcerer, or a hero destined to save the world, or even a prince like Cousin Alfred, Barnaby was free to be whatever he wanted which was nothing as yet. Barnaby was 10 years old and free, and that was all, and that was enough. Or it was until the dreaded hooky pooky birds built nests inside his father's and uncle's and cousin Alfred's ears. Ears full of nests, full of eggs, full of baby hooky pooky birds are very hard to hear through. This made it difficult for Barnaby's uncle and father and cousin Alfred to run the kingdom, since none of them had bothered to learn sign language in case of such an emergency. So there they were. And there was Barnaby, stuck. Why can't Samuel run the kingdom? Or Aunt Ethel, or Cousin Martha, or Mother? Barnaby asked. Eh? said his father, Duke Ernest. Can't hear you, boy, dreaded hooky-pooky birds, he mumbled, pulling his earlobe. 
Why me? Barnaby yelled politely into his father's ear. A loud squawk erupted from Duke Ernest's ear, followed by the higgledy-piggledy hot pink plumage of a hooky-pooky bird. The bird glared at Barnaby and pecked his nose. Barnaby yelled. No need to shout, Duke Ernest said. He lowered his voice to a secretive whisper. Upsets the birds. Barnaby went to find his mother. Duchess Hermione was alone in the highest turret of the castle, hunched over a stack of paper and scribbling furiously. Barnaby opened his mouth to speak. Not now, dear, his mother murmured, still scribbling. Barnaby sighed. Another bestseller. Maybe, dear, maybe, Duchess Hermione smiled happily. It's too early to say. Barnaby turned and started down the stairs. Duchess Hermione's voice drifted down the stairwell with him, testing phrases in the high turret air. He clasped her to his bosom. No, 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 she gazed into his eyes. Tears ran down her face in joyful streams. Joyful streams. Aunt Ethel and Cousin Martha, it turned out, were visiting President Nehru in India and would not be back for several years. Barnaby's older brother, Samuel, had gone with them to commune with Rudyard Kipling, he said. So Barnaby the Free became Barnaby the King, which he didn't think was a fair trade, but which couldn't be helped, at least until the hooky-pooky eggs hatched and the birds all flew away and his father and uncle and cousin Alfred could pull the nests out of their ears. Barnaby explained this to Kim Litch, whose father was the curator of the National Museum. Kim understood completely. So you can't come riding or go hiking or camping or do anything fun until the hooky-pooky eggs hatch and the birds fly away, she said. Right, said Barnaby. How long will that take? Barnaby didn't know, so they asked Kim's father, who wore glasses and was very smart. Eine kleine Nachtmusik, Mr. Lich told them. He had immigrated from Lichtensbruck for 15 years before and didn't speak any language but Lichtensbruckian, which made reading the labels he made for the National Museum very interesting indeed. What? asked Barnaby. Kim looked pale. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? she asked her father quietly. Glockenspiel, he replied soberly. Barnaby grabbed Kim's arm. What did he say? How long will it take the hooky-pooky chicks to hatch? Only a few days, Kim said. That's wonderful, Barnaby exclaimed. He looked at Kim. Isn't it? Kim swallowed. Hooky-pooky birds nest for life, she said grimly. Even when the baby birds hatch and grow big enough to fly away, the parent birds will stay right where they are. Kim and Barnaby looked at each other. I'm in big trouble, Barnaby said. Kim nodded. Then her eyes narrowed. Unless, unless, unless we can trick them into nesting somewhere else. For the first time since becoming king, Barnaby smiled. That afternoon, Kim and Barnaby made a list. The next morning at 9 a.m. sharp, things began disappearing. By 10 a.m., people had begun to notice. Hermione, dear, where did you put my leaf green vest? Have you seen my purple wig, darling? Uncle Ernest, my second best sword's been filched. Where's Barnaby? I want it back. Alfred, my scepter's gone. Hand it over, young man. And where's my moonbeam nightgown? My toupee! The red cape Martha made me for my birthday. My crown will be returned to me this instant. Naturally, with hooky-pooky nests inside their ears, None of the family could hear what anyone else was saying, except Duchess Hermione, who could hear everything but never let any of it sink in. 
Soon they were all yelling and crying and jumping up and down in the great hall, and the servants were fluttering anxiously about, looking for the missing articles, and whimpering, Oh dear, oh goodness gracious me! And the goodness and the hooky pooky birds were screeching and cawing and popping their heads frantically in and out of the duke's and the king's and Prince Alfred's ears. Autobahn! The shout ricocheted off the stone walls of the great hall, breaking into a thousand little echoes that fell shivering to the floor. Everyone shut up. Against the tall blackness, between the high stone pillars of the great hall gate, Wolfgang licked, stood bathed in golden light. The sun had just risen high enough to shine through the clear story windows, which wasn't planned, but which gave the moment a nice dramatic tension. Fergalaufgalop, Mr. Litch announced smilingly and strode forward. He grasped King George's hands and led him toward the door, gliding backwards on his long, thin feet. Everyone else remained still, watching. Guten Tag, the curator called, beckoning them. Auf Wiedersehen. Slowly, ever so slowly, the crowd broke into bemused twos and threes and followed the effortlessly gliding pair out of the great hall. They found Barnaby and Kim in one of the little used bedchambers on the west side of the castle. Three scarecrows stood before them, facing the row of arched windows, their thin limbs draped with borrowed finery. They wore crowns and held scepters and swords. One even had a purple wig. Duchess Hermione gasped when she saw it. It was truly breathtaking. And cascading from the sides of the burlap heads were six glorious ostrich feather ears. Mr. Litch and Kim and Barnaby pulled out black bags. They placed them gently over the outstretched heads of the fascinated hooky-pooky birds, grasped their nests gently, and eased the nests free. They reinstalled each nest just as carefully in one of the scarecrow's magnificent ostrich feather ears. They pulled the bags away. Instead of shrieking indignantly at the change, the hooky-pooky birds blinked and warbled soft, wondering songs. With his finger to his lips, Mr. Litch led the way to the corridor. When every last person had left the room, Barnaby closed the door. Outside, Duchess Hermione grabbed Barnaby's arm. My purple wig and moonbeam nightgown? Uh, said Barnaby. Hmm. The Duchess looked at him consideringly. Barnaby swallowed. Barnaby? Yes, ma'am? Duchess Hermione grinned. Go camping tomorrow, she shook her finger at him, and don't come back for a week. Yes, ma'am, Barnaby exclaimed. As he ran down the corridor, his mother's voice reached him between the swift splat-splats of his shoes on the stone floor. The birds, splat-splat, surrounded with borrowed finery, splat-splat, knew they were home at last, splat-splat, joy, happiness, splat-splat, they cooed and preened in the sunset's glow, splat-splat, paper, splat-splat, I need paper, splat-splat, splat. You know, I have mixed feelings about this story because it was something that I wrote a long time ago, and my writing style has changed quite a bit. Um, some of the sentence structures bother me, uh, but as I remember, I was trying to learn about how to not use lots and lots of words when I didn't need them, and I think that's a valuable experience. Anyway, um, when I pulled this story out a few weeks ago and tried to think, all right, now I'm focusing on creative writing again. I have this story that I wrote. I have a couple of options. I could revise it, um, or I could do something that I'd never done before and experiment upon it. 
um, I suppose it, it in a way is revision, but it's the application of a theory, a particular theory, that I've been using for the past couple of years. It's called actor network theory. And one of the assumptions of actor network theory, one of the, the things that it states, is that the world is, you know, existence, all of existence, not just our planet, uh, is populated with forces. And these forces have physical characteristics and they um, have emotional and, and mental drives, some of them, the human ones and the, the animal ones. But their physical characteristics uh, are what make certain things possible or impossible. And all of the these forces are um, hmm, in league with one another <laughs> in different ways. They're they're gathering together into greater forces. Together, you know, they're stronger than they are apart. An example of this is how large corporations can do a great deal more good or damage <laughs> in some ways than small uh, companies. For example, uh, when we were at war in World War II, the government uh, needed these big corporations that could put together thousands and thousands of people and lots and lots of material resources and organize them and get th uh, products made very quickly, um, airplanes and uh, ships and weapons and uniforms and all of the other things that a fighting force needs. And because of the long reach of these corporations, they were able to get this done. Well, the reason they had that long reach was because they were already organized into an alliance of people and things. Uh, the things may or may not have um, a, a will to move one way or another to collaborate or not, but they do have physical characteristics and they their interactions with other people and things, uh, people and animals and things, um, also complicates the matter. For example, uh, you can roll a pencil across a desk, but it only obeys your will <laughs> for a little while because of its shape. It's long and thin, and it's essentially round, and it should roll very easily. But it's got those—it's got a hexagonal shape, and so those sides, those edges, slow it down a bit. Well, the reason it slows it down is because it's working against the table. The table has a characteristic too, with the tabletop a friction that slows down the pencil. And then again, you're talking about the fact that the temple, the temple, <laughs> the pencil, and the table are on a planet that exerts such force because of its mass that um, it pulls the, t the pencil down into the table, essentially causing it to slow down because it can no longer move contrary to those forces because you didn't force it enough in the first place. I hope that all made sense. Anyway, so I've been working with that um, in social science research, looking at what makes people or what helps people do things or not do things, what helps create alliances um, or destroys them. And because I'm always thinking of how this can apply to creative writing, <laughs> it's just my brain, um, I, uh, I thought, what if I do an experiment with a story? 
I separate it into the kinds of forces that exist in it, and then I change some of the characteristics of those forces, and I see what kind of different story erupts, I suppose, or, or, or comes out of that change. So I took Barnaby and the Hookie Pookie Birds, and I broke it down into a couple of uh, pretty basic kinds of forces. And you could obviously get much more specific than this, or much more various than this. <laughs> that sounds that sounds very Monty Python. <laughs> um, but what I did was I broke it down into protagonist, and setting, and conflict. So in Barnaby, the protagonist is a second son of a second son, which is of course a pun, a riff on a seventh son of a seventh son. Um, and this makes him, this puts him in line for the throne, and he's near enough to have something to do, in, or to have to do something in an emergency, but he's not so close that he's being groomed. He's basically left to run wild if he wants to. He's 10 years old, he can camp on his own, uh, which probably means with attendants um, who let him do all of the, the stuff that he wants to do, and then uh, they get in and, and do the stuff that he doesn't want to do, or they protect him from danger um, that might be around, who knows. But he says he can camp on his own, and he's polite, he's easygoing, he doesn't really think of things on his own, but he is up for a jolly adventure whenever, whenever one seems to be uh, imminent. His best friend is a girl, but his best friend Kim is only nominally female. You know, Kim could have been a guy and served just as well. I only made her a girl because it seemed like it would be a good idea to have an active female in there as well as Barnaby. So I thought, all right, let's change him. What if I did the simplest and most straightforward thing? Well, not straightforward, but the most obvious thing. What if I made Barnaby a girl? Now I could make Barnaby a girl that is that likes to go camping and is polite and easygoing and doesn't think of things on her own, but who is up for a jolly adventure and whose best friend is a boy or whatever. I could basically make it, it a Barnabette. <laughs> Barnabyette? <laughs> but I've been noticing lately that there are a lot stronger differences between most boys and most girls than I was willing to admit when I was in my 20s and was very anti, uh, <laughs> let's just say this, I, I was very interested in women's rights, um, and I still am, but I was very, uh, I, I was set on the idea that men and women were not that different. And uh, since being married, I've been noticing men and women are a lot different. <laughs> so anyway, I was thinking, all right, it's a girl. What, what kind of girl? If you switch it to a girl, she's going to do different things than the male Barnaby would have. Um, and immediately, the, the kind of girl that popped into my head was the kind of girl that I'd seen um, in a couple of different kinds of stories. and. There are certain basic kinds of characters, and this is very useful uh, because you can then have some things that just flow from these, the characters' characteristics. Uh, but this is true in real life as well. Agatha Christie used to use um, this kind of person is like this other person from Miss Marple. This kind of person is like this other person that Miss Marple knew in her hometown, and if, so that means that this person is capable of these 
heinous things. And um, it took me a while to be able to see that uh, in the people around me. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily, necessarily looking for the heinous things they were capable of doing. Although I do that now. I think, all right, what terrible thing is this person capable of? In a, you know, writerly sense. When I see someone um, on the train or I get to know someone at church or something like that. So anyway, um, this, this kind of character popped into my head. And the two examples I can think of best are in um, Tales for the Perfect Child by Florence Perry Hyde, I think. And it's a little book of very short stories that was published in 1985 and with pictures by Victoria Chess. And it's from <laughs> Loth something. I have to open it up to see. Lothrop, Lee, and Shepherd Books in New York. I'll put the information on the show notes. And so these are seven stories about fairly ordinary children who are being asked to do something that they don't want to do by their parents, usually. And so they think of ways to get out of it. And they aren't elaborate plans. They're very straightforward, practical plans. And they're it's full of self-interest and the parents are taken in. They, they end up, you know, they get angry at the children for doing whatever it is that makes it so that the children can't do what the parents want them to. But they, but the parents never catch on that the child is doing it on purpose in order to get out of uh, the, the chore or the trip or whatever it is. And so the ch child always in the end ends up with what he or she wants. <laughs> so that's the first example. And then the second example is from a book by Diana Wynne-Jones, who is a fantasy writer in England. She's one of my favorite authors, really. And uh, she, in one of her books, Charmed Life, I think it's probably her best-received book, um, there's one very strong girl character named... Gwendolyn, and she's evil. And then there's one sort of ally character, well, definitely an ally, named Janet, and she's fairly ordinary. But there's one girl character kind of in the background. She's kind of part of the wallpaper. She's part of a duo. Her her brother is, functions with her as this um, two-personed character, really. Uh, they, they perform a function in the story together. And um, he... Uh, Oh no, she <laughs> she is a little fat and self-absorbed and greedy and resentful, um, and she's perfectly willing to um, go along, you know, to be friends with someone who is willing to go with, along with whatever she wants. And her demands are not great. She's complacent about the things that she uh, that she likes about her life, and she's very resentful and vengeful when someone disrupts that that um, pleasant way of going through um, her life as a as a young schoolgirl. And I have always been fascinated by this girl <laughs> because she's just there in the background, but I just thought there was so much more that could be done with her. So anyway, that's the kind of girl that this protagonist is. Her name is Judith. And I started out here making her about 10 years old like Barnaby but now I think she's probably about 14 
Um, I, not that I wrote enough so that she would grow into a 14-year-old, but I think that in the story she's going to be 14. So I started out with her in the same setting as Barnaby, or a similar setting. She's the daughter of a lady-in-waiting pretty far down the line for the throne. Um, she's perceptive, but she's unperceived as her own person yet. People don't really notice her. They don't pay attention to her, except if she gets in trouble. She's greedy, self-absorbed, easily bored, and in a sort of distant, observant way, she's interested in power, and she notices how she doesn't have very much of it. So her best friend, I wrote down, is a kitchen drudge she's co-opted into secretly bringing her treats. It suits her, suits Judith, to have a, quote, best friend, unquote, over whom she has so much power. So she's trying to experiment with power a little bit. And she likes treats. So um, that was very interesting to me to see how suddenly there's this very different person in this story. And the next I put in the setting. So with Barnaby, it's a, uh, more or less traditional castles of a small kingdom with a national museum. It's got an enlightened court. They're not interested in violence per se. They're not interested in in uh, conquering. Um, they're, they're so laid back that they will not shift the hooky pooky birds from their own ears. Uh, they just want the hooky pooky birds to get done with what they're doing and move on. <laughs> it's a peacetime setting and it's populated with rather silly characters, uh, a lot like the Monarch of the Glen crew. They are all a little silly and crazy, um, but they have more money in this kingdom than the Monarch of the Glen crew does. These adults cannot be relied upon to do anything for themselves, which is how Barnaby ends up having to uh, take care of the conflict. And Kim's father, a, a, who's the only adult who is useful, he's a learned foreigner and he's useful for information and for getting the other adults attention. All right, then I looked at Judith and you know for all that she's a daughter of a lady-in-waiting, um, she doesn't really seem like the type who would be, who would fit in well at court. And that, there's a story in that, you could definitely write a story about that, but I thought she's young, she kind of, she's the kind of girl who would be at a girls school and so I put the girls' school in the Alps, and uh, then I also looked at um, the different kinds of adults who would be around her, and at first I wrote down, these are silly adults, again, who cannot be relied upon to, doing any, relied upon to do anything for themselves. But then I started looking at the conflict. Now in Barnaby, the conflict is an issue of um, authority and responsibility. Barnaby has it thrust upon him and he doesn't really want it. And I thought, well, in a girl's school, what do you do when, um, or what, what can you do in order to make that kind of situation happen for Judith? There are all these people who have authority over her. There's the headmistress. There's maybe the headmistress's assistant. There are all of the teachers. There are the older girls. Um, you know, if all of those people are gone somehow, then there may be other servants who are willing to step in and take some authority, like the housekeeper, or maybe even the cook. And how do you get rid of all of these? And um, so I figured out a way <laughs> to get rid of all of them. Um, and all of the ones that, all of some of them, and then get rid of another uh, group a different way. And then a third group, how to make them the initial 
source of, of conflict for Judith. Uh, she doesn't want this responsibility, but if someone else is complicating her life unnecessarily, if someone else is in taking responsibility, taking away the things that she cares about most, then she's going to stand up and do something, and she's going to take back that power. So, overall, I thought this was a really interesting experiment. I ended up with the potential for a totally new story that is lots of fun for me. <laughs> I'm not going to read that to you because I, whereas I, I have very little hope for Barnaby. Um, I think it's possible that somebody somewhere might want to publish it, but I don't really like it that much. I mean, I like it fine. I like reading through it, and it's a fun little story, but I'm not proud of it. So, but still, if you steal it and say that it's yours, then um, I will hunt you down and pull out your eyeballs with a little pickle fork. And uh, then also show this podcast to your publisher. <laughs> it's got the date on it and everything. So, anyway, <laughs> it's mine. You can't have it. Even if I don't want it, you can't have it. So, but I think the Judith story is going to be very interesting. And I'm excited. So, thanks for letting me tell you all about it. Oh, by the way, did I mention Duchess Hermione is my mother? There was a princess with a bobble, a delightful golden bobble, and of that golden bobble she was fond. She would toss it and she'd catch it until she threw it and she missed it, and it fell into the waters of a pond. Oh no, cried the princess, I've lost my golden bobble. Oh help, cried the princess, whatever shall I do? Ribbit, ribbit. I can help you, said a froggy, a green and speckled froggy. I only ask a promise in return. That you take me to the palace, that you keep me with you always. And hopefully your friendship I will earn. Oh very well, cried the princess. I need that golden bobble. Hearing this, the frog jumped to find the prize. Although it took him quite a long time, the frog surfaced with the bobble. The princess jumped and laughed and dried her eyes. Well done, cried the princess. You found my golden bobble. And she scooped the frog up in her hands. And the princess and the froggy went together to the castle. The princess hoped that the king and queen would understand. So the princess took the frog to the royal supper table, and she set him to the right side of her spoon. Ew, said the prince, the princess's little brother. What is that thing? It's a frog, said the princess. Ew, said the prince. What is it doing on the table? Well, I dropped my golden bobble, and the frog said, Frogs can't talk, silly princess. And the queen said, Princess, one does not bring frogs to the table. And the king said, Princess, put that froggy someplace else while we eat. Well, all right then, said the princess, and she left the table angry. She hoped her family could come to see that the princess made a promise, and a promise is a promise, whether to a person or to a froggy. It was bedtime in the castle, and the princess took the frog to a box where she had made a little bed. The frog said, thank you kindly for the little bed you made me, but I'd rather sleep in bed with you instead. Ew, said
said the princess. But the princess made a promise, and a promise is a promise. So she let the frog sleep in the bed with her, just up by the corner of her pillow. Ew. The next morning, the princess was stretching and yawning when the frog asked her for one more thing. Good morning, lovely princess, there's something I must ask you, and I know that my request may sound amiss. It would help me with my troubles and would make me very happy if only you could give me one tiny princess kiss. Ew, said the princess. But the princess made a promise, and a promise is a promise. So she reached down, picked up the frog, brought him to her lips, and gave him one little tiny princess kiss. And before she knew what happened, there he was standing before her, the most handsome prince she'd ever seen. You have freed me, said the young man, from a terrible enchantment. The princess was so shocked that she turned green. Thank you, said the young man, for doing as I asked you. Well, of course, said the princess, you see. I made you a promise, and a promise is a promise. I promised to help you when you helped me. You see, the princess made a promise, and a promise is a promise. Her promise set the enchanted prince free. That was The Princess's Promise, written and performed by Kate McDowell. You can find more of her work for a free download at www.katemcdowell.com. Let's talk about knitting. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about knitting and making stuff. Let's talk about knitting. Yeah. You tell yeah. it like it is, girl. We'll have some fun. Yeah. I've been noticing lately how much knitters know that sewers don't know and how much sewers know that knitters don't know. And I'm thinking specifically of sewers of clothing. And the word sewers always cracks me up because it's an attempt to be gender neutral, to be inviting to men and to not be, not assume that everyone who sews is a woman. Is the, is the male equivalent of seamstress a seamster? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> But the thing is, sewer is spelled exactly like sewer. Yeah. So I still, I think that that still doesn't work very well. <laughs> anyway, one of my goals is to learn how to design and sew my own clothing. I came to this dream because of a couple of, of main impulses of mine. One is to have things be exactly the way that I want them. Also, um, I have this strong streak of uh, wanting to be self-sufficient anyway, as you may have noticed by now, talking about the chickens and the knitting and all of that. So I started, when I was 11 or 12 or 13, making my own clothes, and I didn't do it very well. No one ever explained to me that the patterns, which are standard sizes, don't match up to the measurements of the average person. 
that there is a distinct difference in, say, hip circumference as compared to waist circumference um, from what the pattern says and what I might actually be. Since no one had told me this, I just thought I was putting things together wrong. <laughs> it didn't occur to me that the pattern might be wrong. I was so respectful of the authority of these pattern makers, and I just didn't understand the concept of putting out a standardized pattern so that sewers <laughs> could measure themselves and go by the pattern measurements and change it to suit themselves. In fact, there are these lovely things called slopers or fitting shells, which are essentially a basic pattern from which all of the other patterns are developed. Think about it this way. If you're going to make an article of clothing for someone, you want to know that person's size and shape in order to get the dimensions right of the article of clothing. You're going to extrapolate from that size or shape. You're going to make it bigger than the person so it fits over that person. Or you need to make it smaller in the case of a sock or a very close-fitting sweater. So you need to know that person's size to begin with. Well, standard sewing patterns and knitting patterns are based on an idealized uh, version of that basic shape of a person. That doesn't mean that it's a perfect shape of a person. That doesn't mean that this is the best shape a person can have. It just means they've made some choices about what they're going to do to get fairly close to what people in certain size ranges might be able to wear so that they can please everyone. Only you don't want them to please everyone, you want them to please you. And they're only mostly right about what size you are. And sometimes they can be very, very wrong. We don't all follow the same pattern of the waist being in a certain proportion to the bust or a certain proportion to the hips. And there are lots of ways in which the human body can vary. We can be bendy. <laughs> we can curve. Um, the back can curve in a way that a sewing pattern doesn't account for. In a knitting pattern, it might not matter so much. Knitting patterns are very forgiving uh, because you're making a stretchy material. But sometimes it does matter. Not all knitted materials are very stretchy. And sometimes, no matter how stretchy they are, they just don't fit right unless you get the measurements right. Yes, that was a rat fight you just heard in the background. The key point here is that a knitting pattern, as wonderful as it is, as thoroughly as the designer has thought out all of the alterations that need to be made to fit these standard variations in size, from a size 4 to a size 8 to a size 12 or whatever, that designer is only going off those standardized sizes, not your size. That designer can't write a pattern for someone who has a size 10 uh, top and torso and a size 12 or 14 rear. That's where you come in. What you've got to do is take your own measurements. You may need a friend to help with this. There are standard places for you to put the tape measure in order to get accurate measurements. You need to be wearing nothing except for the underwear that you will wear 
when you are wearing these clothes, or, as is often the case with knitwear, if you're going to wear that garment over other clothing, you need to measure yourself wearing the types of layers that you're likely to wear under that garment. I put a link in the show notes so that you can find out how to measure yourself if you decide that that is something you want to try. I strongly encourage it. It's a very good way to figure out in advance whether you're going to need to do some tweaking on any type of pattern, either a sewing pattern or a knitting pattern. Now, knitwear designers don't say this will fit a size 10 or a size 12. They say to fit this many inches around the bust or something else or they might say to fit sock sizes, this, this, or this. I don't have that much experience with sock sizing, so I'm afraid I can't help you there. But what I can help you with is to say that if you know your basic measurements, then you can look at what the knitwear designers tell you and extrapolate, this is maybe close to fitting me, or maybe not. If a pattern is close to fitting you, there are certain kinds of alterations that are fairly straightforward, and they involve making some sort of dart in the knitting. In other words, it's just a series of decreases along a vertical or diagonal, diagonal line. Or if you're knitting from the top down, it could be a series of increases. Well, it really just depends on the garment. There are lots of variations, including short rows. Some examples of this fairly straightforward kind of fitting include bust line um, augmentation or decrease or waistline changes. You want something to go in farther for the waist or you want it to not go in quite so much. You mess with darts there. You can find more articles about darts in the Threads magazine database. And also there is a very good article about fitting for a waist in Vogue Knitting Spring Summer 2008. It's by Lily Chin. Lily Chin also has a book of uh, something like Couture Crochet, and I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. She gives a lot of very good information, and again, it's with regard to crochet, about how to design for yourself. Start with the pattern that the designer gives you and then change it or create your own. But if you take into account the differences between knitting and crochet, that knitting is, can be a lot more stretchy than crochet, then you can probably figure out how to use her instructions very well for knitting. If you want to know all the different ways that you can alter a pattern to suit yourself, sewing or knitting, then I strongly recommend a basic sewing book or a pattern making book such as Make Your Own Sewing Patterns by Adele Margulis. I'll put a link to that in the show notes which describes all of the different kinds of darts and the reasons why one would use them in any particular way. Now, all of this implies that we are doing advanced planning on our knitting. Sometimes we don't plan in advance or we don't do it very well. We end up with a garment that is partly done or most of the way done and it's not exactly right. Now, since it is knitting, you can do all sorts of things once you're done and you, fi you find out that there's something wrong. You can do all sorts of things to save it. Uh, for example, as I said, I'm, I'm knitting in gussets <laughs> in the sides of, of that uh, sweater that I'm working on. At least I think I probably am. Uh, I haven't got to the point where I'll pin it together and try it on me yet. 
because I still need to do the collar and, and uh, finish the sleeves and all of that. Okay, I'm finishing this segment a few days later, so I'm sorry if my voice sounds different. I have a cold. The other ways of altering the dimensions of a knitted fabric include widening it by casting on more stitches, either at the beginning or when you get to a certain point in the garment, or gradually as you move up or down the garment depending on the direction of your knitting, or lengthening it by adding in more rows in between increases and decreases, um, or pattern repeats. And in order how to do those kinds of alterations, you're going to have to do some math. <laughs> Yay, math! Uh, and you'll do that math starting out with the gauge that is given in the pattern instructions. You may be one of those lucky, lucky people like me who, no matter what we do, often don't match the gauge in the pattern instructions. This doesn't have to do with needle size or tension. Uh, as far as I can tell, it, it, I don't really understand why it turns out different, but somehow I can get so many stitches per inch side to side and have it be a different number of stitches per inch top to bottom than it says they should be in the gauge. Do I knit tall? I don't understand. Anyway, this confusion or, or um, irrationality or whatever it is, just illustrates further the importance of swatching. I know swatching may be no fun, but make a pot holder out of it or something. It's you know it's it's material. You just made it. it, it think of it as something that you're going to use differently. Make them into ornaments and stick them on your Christmas tree. If you're into designing, you can always make a swatch binder with all the necessary instructions for making each particular swatch. So you have something to go by when you're thinking up your own designs later on. So anyway, you start with that gauge. And you look at how it's the same as or different than your own gauge. If you can match it exactly, hurrah, good for you. Everything's going to be much easier. By the way, while I'm telling you this, one of my rats has discovered the joys of being petted and scratched and groomed by boss rat, which is me and he's up here on my chair behind me demanding to be petted or else he'll get up on the table where I have my computer printer and run around and get into major trouble. So I'm recording this with my arms stretched behind my back and it's starting to cramp up. Yay for me! By the way, it's McGee who's discovered the joys of back scratching. Okay, back to the gauge. Next thing you do is you use their inch measurements that they've given in the pattern. These are the dimensions of the finished pieces of the garment. And it's probably a good idea to check the gauge against what they say the finished pieces will end up looking like because everybody makes mistakes. Then you go back to your own measurements, the measurements of your body or your body wearing whatever clothing you're going to be wearing when you wear the new knitted garment. And here comes the all-important concept of ease. You have to measure in ease or add in ease, which is the space between you and the garment itself when you have it on. Now, like I said, some knitted garments, you want negative ease. Uh, if it's a tight top or a pair of socks, you want it to be smaller in circumference than the part of the body that's actually going to go around. 
but most of our knitted garments, we want some positive ease. We want some space so it's easy to put it on and take it off and so that it doesn't bind around us when we are wearing it. Yay, two rats are now visiting me. I've got uh, Gibbs and Mickey. Gibbs is now down on the chair and Mickey has crawled up to my shoulder and is grooming himself on my on my outstretched arm. I don't know why he likes it there, but he really, really does. Now if you're like me, you haven't had a lot of experience in figuring out how much ease you're going to want. The easiest thing to do is find something that fits you the way you like it, that is generally similar in, in the weight of the fabric and the length and overall dimensions, and measure that thing and then compare it to your own body measurements and see what the difference is, and that you just use that as your ease. Both rats just try to get on the table, so I put them down on the ground, but I put them down at different times, and I dropped McGee headfirst into Gibbs, who thought that it was a challenge, so now they're chasing each other around, and they're going to fight. Joy. Okay, now what you do with the new measurements that you have, which is your body measure measurements plus the ease, you go back to the dimensions that are given in the knitting pattern, and you know whether you've corrected them or not, um, hopefully they're, they're correct by now, and you compare your set of dimensions with theirs, and then you see what the difference is, and you note it, you mark uh, where those differences are, if they're in width on a particular piece, if they're in length, uh, if they're in length on two pieces that are supposed to match up, stuff like that. And then you make all those changes to the pattern, and you write it out, and you write out uh, you make notes to yourself why you made those changes in case it turns out to have some problems somewhere so you can fix them. That's one way of dealing with all of the problems from the beginning. And hopefully a strategy like that will solve all your fitting problems, at least if you know what you're doing from the outset. You have a good idea of what you want to have happen and you understand the strategies that are needed to get there. You can rewrite a pattern for yourself in your own size. Even if you are way, way off the sizes that were given, you can still do it. Now if it's got stitch patterns on it or something like that, you're going to need to make allowance for those. And remember the stitch patterns repeat in certain uh, numerical measurements. They repeat in, in patterns of six or patterns of eight or something like that. And that's partly where the sizing comes from too in a, in a knitting pattern. So be aware of that, and if there are color blocks on it, then you're, you may have to draw in extra of that color on the new edges that you're putting in if you're bigger than the pattern. Or if you're smaller, you may need to rearrange some of those color blocks so that they show up better on the smaller torso that is you, or hand, or foot, or whatever it is. Now if I know all this, why am I the person who has to put in gussets in her sweater? That's because I measured wrong. I measured where the bottom of the sweater was going to hit instead of where the widest part of the sweater was going to be. In other words, I measured around the bottom of my bum, mostly just my legs, when I should have measured, you know how rear ends stick out in an arc? should have measured the, the widest part of that arc. And uh, so... Yeah, my bad. <laughs> you can know everything you're supposed to do and still do it wrong. <laughs> anyway, I hope you have a better time of it than I'm having. Happy knitting! And now it's time for... Navel. Pshhh. Criminal. Pshhh.
investigative. Rats. That's right. I said rats. What do you do if the two guys you're forced to live with take turns bullying you, pushing you around? What's a guy to do? You're supposed to just sit there and take it? Nah. The worm turns, baby. The worm turns. And this worm, I'm telling you, this worm's got teeth. I have some sad news. Tony, my sweet boy, is no longer sweet. Tony has put on a black leather jacket and started smoking, and now he rides a Harley. I think this is probably, well, it could be the result of a couple of different things. First of all, um, he and the other guys have reached uh, sexual maturity. Actually, they reached it a couple months ago uh, when they started humping each other. Um, and I thought that was going to be it, since I the only rats I ever had before were, I had some girls, and I had them for the whole of their lives. And then I had a couple of boys who just didn't bond with me, and so I took them back to their to the breeder. And these guys have bonded with me wonderfully. We get along great. Except when they're fighting. And uh, I told you about the, the sort of boxing that they do and um, the wrestling. And some of the wrestling is really very interesting. Jason pointed out to me that Gibbs may not be the kind of <laughs> guy that I thought he was. Uh, because Gibbs is actually a very good wrestler. Uh, there are certain things that rats do when they're wrestling, and one of them is when someone's coming up alongside you to attack you, and of course they walk on all four feet most of the time, when someone's coming up alongside you to attack you, uh, you, instead of getting letting that rat get on your back, because you don't want him on your rear, and you can bite and bite and nip on your rear, um, then you kind of sidle away so that rat comes up right next to you and then you reach your back and reach your foot around in back over that guy's tail and stand on that foot and then you push him over your leg. There's some standard wrestling term for this move which uh, Jason knows and I'm afraid I don't. I'll have to get him to tell it to me and I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, so Jason, who likes wrestling a lot um, as a spectator sport, noticed this and said, Gibbs is not stupid. <laughs> Gibbs is a very tactical uh, kind of wrestler. So that sort of wrestling has been going on for quite a while, uh, and there's no problem. But I always felt a little sorry for Tony, because Tony is a smart rat. He's not a big muscly rat, he's just a smart rat. And this means that he gets beaten up and picked on all the time by the other guys. And I think he just, I think something just snapped. I think he got injured a, a few weeks ago and decided, no way, this is not happening anymore. And I think he developed what I'm calling an Ender Complex. I don't know if you've ever read the Ender series of books by Orson Scott Card, but... Ender Wigan has this idea that if anybody picks on him, if he turns around and hurts them so badly that they can't get up again, then they won't come back and get him later. 
which is very useful for the government since they're training him to fight off a terrible race of aliens that they think are going to destroy humanity. Oh, did I spill the beans? <laughs> so back to the rats. <laughs> Tony has been getting pushed around a lot um, for a long time, and I intervened. I would tell the other guys, uh-uh, and I would provide a safe place for Tony to run to. Well, I can't be around all the time, and there are times when I can't stop the other guys, especially when they hit maturity and got to be really aggressive. And I and Tony got injured a couple months ago, and he was limping for several weeks, and uh, he did heal and um, seems to be pretty cheerful. But a little bit after that, when he started feeling better, he started biting, and he bit hard. And I, at first I just noticed that he was biting the, the other guys, the other boys, and then suddenly he was biting me. Sometimes for it seemed like no reason at all. And other times I could see how he might have gotten frustrated with something I was doing, and he decided he was going to bite me. Well, when a rat bites and bites hard, when a rat nips, then it's no big deal. They don't mean to hurt you. Uh, it may pinch, but if they don't pierce the skin, then they really didn't mean anything by it. They were going for something else, maybe food in your hand, or they were just, they were grooming you maybe, or um, they're trying to play with you, whatever it is. But suddenly, Tony was biting hard, and, and rats have teeth that are so sharp and really long and curved, um, like uh, a, um, oh, like a, uh, is it a wrench? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, pliers? Not pliers. Anyway, a claw, like a claw. <laughs> Hold up your hand and curve your fingers around till they meet your thumb and curve your thumb up to meet your fingers. And that's what their teeth are like. And they have these incredibly strong jaws and they have sharp, sharp, sharp teeth that they have to grind all the time. And it was, I mean, there was blood everywhere. You've heard <laughs> the recent, my recent report on when Tony bit me. And, uh, and it hurt, and it was getting scary, and I just didn't know what to do. So I looked up a lot of things. It turns out that rats, when they hit that stage, it is possible that some rats, very few, develop an overload of testosterone. And this makes it very difficult for them to control their anger and their, their fighting instinct. And they will be aggressive not only to other rats, but to humans. So that was a possibility. I, think, I do think it would be a good idea to get Tony neutered, especially since all three of the guys are a problem. I'd like to get them all neutered. And because it's, you know, it's just kind of off-putting to try to play with your boys and have them end up in this big ball of growling rats and that rolls all over the room and that you're scared to touch. <laughs> no fun. <laughs> um, so I've been looking, so that's one, one uh, possibility, uh, the testosterone of what's going on. And then the other is also that um, he's a smart guy and maybe he just figured out that if he bit really hard, maybe they'd leave him alone. Uh, he bit Gibbs really, really badly. Almost bit right through his left forearm. Uh, or maybe his right forearm. Anyway, one of his forearms on Sunday night and there was screaming, rat screaming, and there was blood and we took him to the vet and it had already sealed up. And there's this, you know, these two puncture wounds, one on the top and one on the bottom of his arm. Luckily, he's already on a pretty strong antibiotic for another health condition that he has. So, so far, no infection, but it was all bruised, and it was a little bit swollen, 
and I just felt really bad for him. You know, he's using it completely normally now and doesn't show any signs of being in pain or anything. So I think maybe to him, not that big a deal. But ah, I, I just want to, I just want to make it stop. So I've been checking around to see how much it costs to get rats neutered. Well, it turns out that rats have a different physiology than rabbits. So where there are many people with house bunnies now, and there are lots of vets who can um, neuter a rabbit, not very many vets know how to neuter a rat. So when I find one who does know, then it turns out that, okay, they need an intake exam, which costs about $60 around here. And then the actual surgery costs between $150 and $200. And then also they may charge, a couple of places that I call do charge this, they charge um, extra for the veterinarian's time for checking in on the rat. They charge extra for the medications that the rat needs to take in order to not get, not go septic and they charge extra for hospitalization time. So, multiply that by three, and you see my problem. I don't know what I'm gonna do. But anyway, at some point, I will figure it out. <laughs> Wish me luck. In honor of my dear and scary rat, Tony, I'm gonna end this podcast with a special musical number. Ow! Ow! Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> a special musical number that I think sums up the situation perfectly. Enjoy!
That was The Truth by The Vital Might.